Welcome to the Institute for Person-Centered Care podcast, where the principles of person-centered care come alive. This month, a panel of addiction recovery experts join Ann Garten to discuss the importance of person-centeredness in recovery. Before we get started, we want to remind you of the importance of continuing to follow CDC and local health guidelines. You can find the latest COVID recommendations for your area by using the links in our episode notes. Welcome to the IPCC podcast, brought to you by the Institute of Person-Centered Care in collaboration with KALA-FM. I'm Ann Garten, Director of the Institute for Person-Centered Care and Nursing Faculty here at St. Ambrose University, and will be your host for today's podcast. Today, I'm extremely happy to introduce to our listeners three community members who are working hard to deliver person-centered care across sectors to those healing with addiction. Kyle West of Quad City Sober Living, one of Vera French's clinical social work specialists, Laura Hill, and Rusty Boroff of 180. Welcome, everyone. Kyle, I'm going to start with you. I wonder if you would take a moment and introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself. Absolutely. Uh, my name is Kyle West, and I am the owner and director of Quad City Sober Living, which is a structured sober living facility focused on transition here in Davenport, Iowa. I've been in recovery for six years, and a large part of my sobriety was spent living and working out of sober living, similar to ours here at Quad City Sober Living. Uh, currently, we have one house for men, uh, though we do have plans for a women's house in the future. Excellent. Thanks for sharing. Laura, uh-huh. would you introduce yourself? Yes, my name is um, Laura Hill, and I am a mental health therapist for adults at Vera French Community Mental Health Center. And I primarily work with uh, people with co-occurring and coexisting substance use disorders, trauma, and, of course, mental health issues. And I'm a person in recovery. Also, my recovery started in 1986. Excellent. Thank you for sharing. Rusty, your turn. Yeah, well, I'm glad to be here. My name is Rusty Boroff. I'm the executive director uh, and the founder of, of 180, which... Uh, does a lot of stuff here in the Quad Cities, but really investing in neighborhoods and lives and people who really want to change, specifically people who are coming from backgrounds uh, such as myself of addiction uh, in homelessness and eventually incarceration uh, for me personally about 15 years ago. Thank you all. Thanks for sharing too, Rusty. I um, want to start out with a little bit of statistics right? And according to the National Survey on Drug Use and Health, 19.7 million American adults age 12 and and older battle a substance use disorder. Uh, That was from 2017, that data. So that was the most updated uh, that I could find. But in 2019, the Quad City Times shared that the Centers for Alcohol and Drug Services provided care to 58,000 Quad Cityans for alcohol and drug-related services and 2,600 additional individuals for substance use disorder. 
What I really want to focus on, though, is those are a lot of numbers, but we know to be true that those are family members. They are our moms, our dads, our uncles, our nephews, our nieces. Um, they're, they're, they're humans. They're people. And um, I wonder if we start, Laura, a little bit with you and share with us a diagnosis of addiction and what that looks like and how person-centeredness impacts that individual's goal towards sobriety. Well, diagnosing is interesting. Um, you know, there's the clinical diagnosis we do need to make, um, which is a substance use disorder. There's mild, moderate, or severe. And obviously there's people out there who maybe drink but don't meet criteria for a substance use disorder. I think the easiest thing for people to remember is if they're using is resulting in some kind of functional impairment, either in interpersonal relationships, work, legal issues. One thing that people don't think about is how does it impact a person's medical condition or their mental health? Uh, I hear quite a lot of people say, well, he can't be an alcoholic because he goes to work every day. Okay, so that's just one area of, of functioning that we need to look at. So when we're looking at diagnosing, the key thing is how is that impacting a person's functioning? Indeed. And I think, too, we also have to incorporate the thoughts around uh, mental health and anxiety and, mm -hmm. and trauma that has occurred in, in people's lives and, and how that impacts um, addiction as well, correct? Yes, that's very true. Um, there's a high percentage of folks that come into, for example, a community mental health center like Vera French for a mental health issue, maybe anxiety or depression. Um, and a high percentage of those people will have a coexisting substance use disorder or maybe not necessarily a disorder, but maybe they're experiencing some problematic use that's creating difficulties for them. Quite often, people self-medicate for years and years and years. They quit using, they go through a rehab facility, um, and then all of a sudden these anxiety symptoms or these depressive symptoms or these trauma memories come back just like a wave, a huge wave over and over again. It's very difficult for people who have been using substances to avoid feeling emotions and all of a sudden they're dealing with these these emotions and these these symptoms. So we talk a lot about um, what part is related to your substance abuse or use and what part might be related to the mental health issue you're experiencing because it's different for everybody. And how do we distinguish the two and how do they feed on each other? A lot of people might experience substance use relapse issues or lapses due to mental health symptoms and vice versa. So very closely tied in together. I think that really pulls in those questions of what just what you said, that person-centeredness, really understanding the person and how what's impacting them to, um, to follow this path of addiction, right? So we know we have a lot of treatments, and um, here in the Quad Cities, um, there's typically one type of treatment that we're, we're seeing, and, and, but we have a lot of barriers to treatment as well that, that I think, Kyle, you can 
pull in about what what you see in the Quad Cities and what are some of those barriers? Right. Um, it's not just in the Quad Cities. I mean, this is a national issue, right? And so um, on a very micro scale here in the Quad Cities, it's no different than the macro scale of, of the rest of the country. Um, and then it's access to treatment. And so I actually have a statistic here that about a, about a half a million people in uh, 2019 needed some sort of addiction treatment, but couldn't get it either due to no um, insurance that would cover it or their insurance. They did have insurance that would cover it and they only covered like four or five days. And I can speak from experience on that. When I got sober six years ago, I was at a treatment facility in Illinois and I was in there for six days before my counselor said, Hey, your insurance is no longer going to cover um, the rest of your, your 30 day stay here, which is your typical inpatient, you know, treatment um, timeline. And I was scared, you know, I was terrified because, you know, here I am six days into a program, my life is in shambles and, and I'm just starting to get into like the actual work of, of what they offer. And fortunately for me, um, my family was able to help cover the cost of that. Um, and, you know, I was, I was able to, to complete that program, but that's not the case for a lot of people. The financial resources of that um, can be, can be devastating. Um, and not only that, like research also shows that nowadays it's like three to six months that's recommended for treatment um, for, for those of us who are struggling from uh, drug abuse, alcoholism, drug addiction. Um, and your typical stay here in the, in the U S is, is 30 days. Right. And then it's right back to where you went before. And that is why places like quad city sober living places like 180 have really emerged and been successful because it fills that gap between, okay, I, I've only been in treatment for 30 days. Now what? We're here to fill that gap of here's some more structure with some accountability so that you can succeed. You have that, you have a better chance of, of succeeding in your recovery. Right. Yeah. I love, I love that piece, how you're, you're seeing that gap. So how do we close that? And, and organizations like yourselves and, and Rusty's, you know, 180 are, are, are doing that. And, but how else can we do that? Cause I think that's really important to understand is this is not a one and done. This is a lifetime process um, for someone who's working through this. Um, and, and so I wonder, I know Kyle, for you, it's that stability living, you know, I think for, um, those of us in, in some areas can also look at policy. What are your thoughts, everyone? Laura, I'm going to start with you. <laughs> I was just going to comment policy. I mean, mental health parity and substance use parity is a huge issue. I think also um, making sure that when there are barriers such as transportation, especially for rural areas, how, how is somebody going to get to a, number one, an inpatient program, number two, if there's an outpatient program, and number three, if a community doesn't have a sober living or a 180 zone, how does somebody get there from a rural location three hours away? So I think there needs to be a lot of policy changes. It needs to be viewed as a medical condition. Indeed. Rusty, your thoughts? 
Yeah, no, I 100% agree with, especially that last line of, you know, this needs to be viewed as a medical condition. Um, When we look at someone and we look at the uh, best opportunity for long-term success, you know, we're looking at a person from from five areas, relational, uh, who are they, what relationships do they have surrounded around them, Um, mental, uh, we've, we've talked about that, spiritual, emotional, and physical. And so what we've seen is that for someone to have that long-term success, you really have to address all five of those areas and also have long-term supports within all five of those areas. Um, You know, we talked about a rural setting. You know, I grew up in a very small town where, you know, out of those five things, we might have spiritual, uh, you might have uh, physical and relational, but you didn't have any emotional uh, assistance in a small uh, community, and you definitely didn't have access to any uh, uh, mental side of that as well. And so um, I think a lot of it depends on what is, is, is already built inside that community, but really focusing, like I said, on that relational, mental, spiritual, emotional, physical, and making sure each person has access to all five of those areas I think is really important. So, Laura, I wonder, I have my own thoughts, but I'm going to pick your brain here on that whole telehealth. With the pandemic, we're seeing a lot more of that happening, and and we're seeing some policies starting to happen about um, uh, supporting that financially in the healthcare world and what have you. But what are your thoughts also on on that need for that face-to-face versus telehealth, and can we do a mix, or or what are your thoughts? I think definitely face-to-face. works better for most folks. However, for people who have coexisting medical conditions, that might make it difficult for them to travel to an appointment, especially on an outpatient basis. Um, Telehealth is is vital. One of the things we heard from people during the pandemic was losing their one-on-one face-to-face support with, for example, the AA or the NA meetings that they were used to going. They really missed that face-to-face and felt that was very important in their, in their recovery. Uh, the other thing I, I did want to bring up, too, is I think because we're able to do telehealth, this is something that they have been doing for a little bit, at least, for medical conditions. And, again, making this a parity issue for people with mental health and substance use disorders, it's so important to be able to connect Somehow, if we can't do face-to-face because of some issue, being able to connect through video or through phone call, it, it's vital. Human connection is vital. I agree, and, and I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull Rusty in on this piece because that person-centeredness, we, we know we need to address the individual in that regards and for their improved success and families and supportive organizations can be a big part of that. Um, and he's already he's already pulled some of that in, but I wonder if you want to add, you know, I, the reason why I had um, connected with Rusty is they recently shared a great video of a young lady whose mom had an addiction and um, and how it impacted her as a, I think she was 11 or 12 year old, right? Um, and how we can help the, the whole families uh, and who how that individual defines families is obviously very important because that can change as well. But um, what are your thoughts, Rusty, of how organizations across sectors can address this and, and pull in that person-centeredness in that regards? 
Yeah, so when we look at, at 180, the model that we really um, have designed ourselves on and, and that has, has worked well for us is, um, and Kyle alluded to this earlier, of, of being more of a long-term program. I mean, our program is 14-plus months that they live here. And then we offer long-term housing, you know, endless housing for as long as they want after that as well. And the the power that we find is that power of community and um, also accountability. And so when you take someone who is coming out of this lifestyle, uh, the, the mother in this case you're talking about, her name is Nicole. Uh, one of the things that made Nicole um, successful, if you talk to her, was uh, – one was the community aspect that she has continued to surround herself with people um, who maybe have experienced some of the stuff she's experienced or are all in on supporting her um, in that sober lifestyle that she is now leading. And then the second thing uh, that sh she'll talk about is that accountability piece. You know, she ended up uh, moving into what we call st our stability housing after she graduated uh, and lived there for a few years until she felt uh, confident and comfortable enough in moving out on her own. And so when you look at addiction specifically um, and, and mental health or any of the things that we talk about, uh, it really affects the whole family structure. And what we found out was we needed at least a good six months to figure out who we were even dealing with um, and that's why it was so important for us. Like we even employ them while we're, while they're here, we control a hundred percent of their environment. And a big reason is because that buys us time to really deal with the true Nicole and diving into her family um, and how it's, how um, addiction has affected the rest of her family. Cause if you don't deal with that at some point that will catch up to them, you know? And so that 10 or 11 year old girl um, she is. She has to be part of that equation as well, and so that's why we found out that that long-term program uh, is really important. And then also even dealing with the person itself. Um, you know, we aren't looking for perfect people when they come into our program. Um, to be honest, I'm not. You know, I'm not even expecting them to be honest. I'm just looking for someone who is truly willing uh, to help to to get help. And if they are absolutely 100% willing, we can, we can work through all those other areas. We can work through trustworthiness and honesty and integrity and, and all those different areas that we need to work on. Um, but at the beginning, we're just looking for the people who really want to change. Once we find that person, um, then we're able to deal with that whole that family aspect um, and all the people who have been affected, sadly, by their addiction um, and help them process that and deal with that while they're in a controlled environment. Indeed. And I think for families, that's really important to understand, especially if they have not um, experienced addiction. And, and for themselves, they may need to become part of counseling. And actually, it's very suggested that they become part of counseling yeah. and, and support groups and, and things of like that. So I wonder if any one of you would want to share a little bit about that dynamic. Sure, I can, I can share about that. Um, I mean, that's, that's something that I deal with on a, on a weekly basis, uh, a lot of a lot of the people who come into my sober living and people that I've dealt with in the past, um, 
you know, family of, of friends who are in recovery or family of uh, people that we have in the, in the sober living, the vast majority of them are not addicts or alcoholics themselves. And so it's very difficult for them to understand that they also have a part to play. Um, and unfortunately for a lot of people, that part, especially with close family, is that willingly or not, they have enabled that person to do what they are, the, to destroy their lives with, with the drugs and the alcohol over the years. Um, and not only that, obviously the mental health aspect as well, but um, that's why programs like Al-Anon exist. That's why, um, you know, it's strongly recommended that, that mom and dad or husband or wife or brother or sister go, go to therapy as well to, to work on that because it, when they say it's a family disease, it, it really truly is. And um, I think one of the most, um, I don't want to get too off topic here, but I think one of the most interesting things about uh, recovery and drug addiction, and alcoholism is that it's, it's so unique to each person, right? It's not, there's no blanket treatment like we have for other physical or mental illnesses, right? So it's so very specific to each kind of person that I think that is the, more than anything is the biggest challenge that we face in our field, right? Like we don't have, like there's not a medication that you take and then like, okay, like it's all gone now because like Rusty alluded to, like there is a very large aspect of recovery that is spiritually based, right? And that's so different for everybody. The physical and the mental too is, and, and I want to go off of what Laura said, like not only do you, are there co-occurring disorders, mental health with the substance abuse, but sometimes those mental health issues have arisen specifically because of the, the drug use or the, the alcoholism, right? Like for me, sp uh, like to speak on myself, I was diagnosed with anxiety, depression, antisocial disorder, bipolar disorder in my use. Okay. Uh, ADHD as well. And nine months after my, I got sober, I went and got a mental health evaluation again. And guess what? I had none of those symptoms anymore. All of those diagnoses were gone. Now, that's not the case for everybody. Obviously, there are people who will continue to have those disorders. But again, that uniqueness of each person and how, how we treat that across the board is, is so challenging. It's so challenging. Well, indeed, because we know that a lot of people self-medicate because of yeah. their mental health issues or, or even their physical health. I mean, mm -hmm. how many times because of pain or mm -hmm. other chronic diseases are we self-medicating and then that, that has um, impacted them and, and, and have them now living through sobriety? And right. I'm going to jump in here real quick, too, if you don't mind. Quite often what um, happens um, when we're talking about symptoms, when somebody's actively using, for example, cocaine or another um, amphetamine or stimulant, they might get diagnosed with something like bipolar disorder because that's all people are seeing is that mania kind of things. And once they quit using what looked like mania symptoms are drug-related and not mental health-related. So it's very difficult to get an accurate diagnosis for somebody who is actively using. Indeed, indeed. 
closing thoughts before we head out. I'm going to start with you, Rusty. What do you, what, anything you feel like we need to touch on um, before we close out the podcast? One of the things that, that Kyle, you know, had mentioned was about um, how in many cases, you know, um, family that are in that supportive role aren't used to dealing with people that have addictions or mental health or, or whatever the situation is. And other times, a lot of the families that we see can also be on the flip side where they are coming from generational addiction. Um, and I think it's important for all of us to understand, you know, it's, it's hard to get clean when you're in a mud puddle. And so if, if after treatment, if those families aren't going to a healthy living environment where they do have healthy support systems, um, all the work that was done can get erased really quickly. And so I also think it's important for those people who, um, you know, are, um, you know, in the, are in the equation of supporting people who are going through programs or addiction or mental health um, that, you know, it's a good time also to look at yourself and to say, is there anything that I can do um, to help my loved one who is going through this difficult time? So I think, I think that's important as well. I love that. And I think um, that's why earlier I said how they define family, because sometimes we have to put very healthy relationship boundaries on what my family is allowed to be a part of versus who yeah. is able to support me through this journey, right? Mm -hmm. yep. Kyle, any thoughts from you that you want to make sure our listeners hear? Yes. So for me, I think honestly the biggest issue in our field is stigma. Um, and the stigma that um, when it comes to addiction, it's a moral issue and not a health issue. It is very much a health issue. And the one of, I mean, we're very early in our, in the world in treating addiction. Right. And so we still have a long way to go, I think. But the, one of the biggest barriers I see now is stigma and that people with addiction do actually deserve public resources to, to work on these issues. Um, and so if we can overcome that, then I think we go a long way. Indeed, it kind of excited me when you and I were talking earlier um, pre-podcast and you shared that your neighbors were excited to have your facility in their neighborhood. That yes, says it all. That's just, you know, exactly what we want. And, you know, I, I also know 180 is highly supported in our community. Both of you, I live between the two of you. So I'm feeling the love. <laughs> and, and that's really, really important because without those resources, we're not impacting those numbers or those family members or the individual that we, we presented at the very beginning. Laura, any closing thoughts from you? Yes, I really want to tap on to um, what Kyle talked about with um, stigma. I think the other part that stigma plays into it is that one treatment fits all, and it really does need to be personalized and different for everybody. And what's really excited about um, the Sober Living Program in 180 Zone is that's typically where you see most of the personalized and really working where the person is at instead of a this is the program we have here and this is what you have to fit into instead of tying it to the individual's needs and preferences. 
Indeed, and we want those in our communities because that's mm-hmm. where they feel comfortable, right? If I have to mm-hmm. send somebody to Chicago or to Indianapolis or St. Louis or Des Moines, then I'm also taking them, I'm making them more stressed out because I'm taking them out of their environment that they're comfortable with. And for some people, that may be what they need, but that's not necessarily the, ma- the majority, I mm-hmm. would think. So. I want to thank each and every one of you. This has been a very insightful and I think uh, will be very helpful to a lot of our listeners because um, truthfully, this this disease, and it's not even, I won't hate to say that piece, living with sobriety is really um, needs to be person-centered. And without that connection, then they're constantly revolving back um, and, and having to work through it at, at the initial start again, right? Um, I think that's really important for people to understand. Thank you each and every one of you. The Institute for Person-Centered Care podcast is produced at the KALA-FM studios in Davenport, Iowa. The show is engineered by Dave Baker, and produced by Ann Garten, Director of the Institute for Person-Centered Care and Nursing Faculty at St. Ambrose University. You can learn more about the Institute for Person-Centered Care by visiting us online or connecting with us on Facebook or Twitter.